peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the Bridge of Sighs. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. The witchcraft trials of the 17th century. These atrocities have always inspired a special kind of dread in my psyche. Collective mobs drowning in groupthink and hysteria, inflicting their will on an innocent, all based on outrageous and incredible claims. The powerlessness of the victim, as members of their own community, impugn them with the worst types of crimes, crimes human beings aren't even capable of. On top of all of this, the madness of the crowds infects even the legal system, the courts. The very institution created to dole out justice actually becomes the very institution carrying out horrifically unjust sentences. Perhaps the worst part is that while the witchcraft hysteria was hundreds of years ago, the instinct to hunt down perceived heretics of any variety just seems to be part of human nature. We can all conjure examples from more recent history of witch hunts, and I'm sure we have all wondered what it would be like to be the one who all the fingers point to, to be the name on everyone's lips, to have the eye of destruction fixed upon you. There's a clever little wordplay trick that you'll sometimes see when researching these events. It comes in the form of a simple question, one that seems to be merely testing your knowledge of New England history. How many witches were killed during the Salem witch trials? You may be perusing your memory of history class or that documentary you watched or podcast you listened to, trying to come up with the number of how many were tried and killed during that terrible time in history. Did you catch the trick? The answer is zero. Zero witches were killed. Only innocent, fully human victims. Nowadays, we of course say this with confidence, because of course there is no evidence that any of these people had sold their souls to the devil, or that they had spells that were successfully carried out, or anything of the like. But, what if we did have such evidence? What if we did have reason to wonder? Would we reconsider the justice that was supposedly delivered by the townspeople? What if... One of these supposed witches had placed a violent curse upon her town just before her death. A curse that actually came true. The Bay Road Burial Ground I first became interested in the story of Abigail Franklin in the summer following my graduation from the university. I had taken the summer off prior to seeking employment, and traveled throughout New England collecting interesting tales from the little villages I passed through. Eventually, I hoped to compile the stories into a collection and have it published as Fables and Folklore of New England, or some such predictable title. It was during my stay in the hamlet of Southgate I became aware of the trial of Abigail Franklin, a little-known witchcraft trial overshadowed by its infamous counterpart in nearby Salem. The basic outline of the story recited by the typical denizen of Southgate, had Abigail Franklin guilty of conjuring a severe drought. After she, unsuccessfully, extorted money from the village as a condition for ending the drought, she was then brought to trial. Found guilty, 
She was hanged and laid to rest outside the confines of Southgate Cemetery, known as the Bay Road Burial Ground. Before sentence was passed, Abigail cursed the citizenry with a collective death sentence. Less than a year had passed when a mysterious affliction spread through the town and killed nine out of ten citizens. The town was abandoned and rebuilt ten miles distant, leaving only the Bay Road burial ground as mute testament to what had occurred. Experience had taught me the popular conception of a story and the facts behind the same tale were quite often two completely different animals. I had a feeling the story of Abigail Franklin would be no exception. I began my research at the Southgate Public Library. Buried among the antiquarian stacks, I discovered a transcript of the trial. Like the Salem witchcraft trials, an inordinate amount of testimony against the accused was in the form of spectral evidence. It seemed a trio of witnesses testified Abigail's spirit appeared to them in dreams and bragged about causing the drought, while Abigail's physical body was known to be elsewhere at the same time. By its very nature, spectral evidence, if given credence, was incredibly damaging for the accused because it was impossible to refute. Is it reasonable to expect someone to be able to prove they did not appear to another person in a dream? Further testimony, from a certain Miles Hanover, implied Abigail was possessed of knowledge concerning potions and elixirs. Goody Wainwright unhesitatingly confirmed the observations of the respectable Mr. Hanover. The good Reverend Honeycutt claimed Abigail came to him, after the drought had lasted for one year, and offered to provide Southgate with water. She asked an exorbitant price. It was after making the suggestion, Abigail was arrested. Half a dozen witnesses testified to seeing Abigail stalking the woods at all hours with a queerly shaped broomstick. It was strongly inferred the broomstick was used to carry her through the air, though no one had actually seen her in the act. The suggestion was made that the queer shape of the stick might have aided Abigail in casting spells. However, no one was willing to definitively assert what Abigail did with the broomstick. At the end of the transcript was an addendum, noting two days after the hanging, a well was excavated, which proved to be a source of pure, sweet water capable of supplying the needs of the entire village. The implication being, the discovery of the well had been God's way of rewarding the inhabitants of Southgate for ridding their community of a pernicious influence, namely, Abigail Franklin. For her part, Abigail denied the charges leveled against her. She claimed the town leaders were persecuting and prosecuting her, so they would not be required to pay her an agreed-upon fee for ending the drought. In addition to the trial transcript, I studied the letters and diaries written by residents of Southgate, donated to the library by the surviving relatives. Scant as they were, I also searched through other public records from the time of the trial. Slowly, I began to develop an image of Abigail Franklin uncluttered by the aura of witchcraft, an image somewhat at odds with the prevailing sentiment. Apparently Abigail existed on the margins of society. She lived alone on the outskirts of town, part midwife, part herbalist, she managed to scrape together a living by delivering children and selling remedies for any number of common ailments. Abigail was apparently quite competent as a midwife. I was surprised to learn the publicly recorded births indicated she delivered fully half of Southgate's newborns in the year before she was hanged. Interesting. This fact also implied she was well trusted by the populace of Southgate. However, Abigail didn't attend church which might explain why she was popular with the townspeople in a professional capacity, but never accepted socially by the community of Southgate as one of their own. After digesting this information, 
I returned once again to the trial transcript. Abigail was well known as a dispenser of herbal remedies. Could this be the basis for the claim by Miles Hanover, and confirmed by Goody Wainwright, that Abigail was possessed of knowledge concerning potions and elixirs? Perhaps Miles Hanover and the good wife Wainwright were new to the community and misinterpreted Abigail's herbal remedies as potions and elixirs. Not true. A record of birth indicated Abigail had delivered Mr. Hanover's second child two and a half years previous to his accusation in open court. Similarly, Goody Wainwright admitted in a letter to her sister of being cured of the ague by Abigail during a particularly harsh winter. Abigail had, no doubt, utilized potions and elixirs to effect the cure of the respectable Miss Wainwright. Why would Hanover and Wainwright mislead the court, allowing everyone concerned with the trial to misinterpret the genuine purpose behind Abigail's potions and elixirs? I turned my attention to the charge that Abigail had utilized a queerly shaped broomstick for deviant purposes of some sort. What made the shape queer? I reread the trial transcript, but remained unenlightened on the subject. Yet, I remembered a reference somewhere to a certain stick, or odd stick, or strange stick, in the papers before me. I checked the meager cache of letters and diaries in my possession once again, and found what I'd been seeking. A young woman had written in her diary of a curious forked stick a woman of the village owned that could find any manner of thing. Of course, the queerly shaped broomstick must have been a dousing rod. Abigail had been familiar with the art of dousing. That must have been how she proposed to break the drought. She never promised to make it rain. She promised to provide water for the town of Southgate. It was her intent to find an underground river or reservoir to fulfill the needs of the village. Thus, a considerable portion of the testimony given at Abigail's trial had been damning precisely because it contained these grains of truth, though the truth had been purposely distorted to make Abigail's actions appear as sinister as possible. Abigail had made potions and elixirs, but all for good, not ill. Abigail had stalked through the woods at night with stick in hand, but in order to find water, not to cast spells or ride the stick through the air. Abigail had asked for a fee to end the drought, a fee due her for services rendered. Another tidbit of information in Abigail's favor involved the addendum to the trial transcript. Why the addendum would be made a part of the transcript when it was in no way related to the trial was telling. The discovery of the water source was obviously interpreted as a justification for the trial and subsequent hanging. But why did the people of Southgate feel a justification was necessary if Abigail truly had perpetrated the crimes she'd been accused of, then the addendum would most likely have never been added. It was obviously nothing more than a salve for the collective conscience of Southgate. On closer examination, other disturbing discrepancies became apparent. By all accounts, the drought had begun during spring planting. By midsummer, the crops, already stunted by lack of moisture, withered and died. The old community well yielded just enough water for the necessities of drinking, cooking, and basic hygiene. By autumn, the inhabitants were forced by these circumstances to begin consuming their surplus from the previous harvest. It would be a long, lean winter for Southgate. Why was Abigail not immediately arrested and brought to trial when it became evident she was the cause of the drought? Why wait until she had asked for money to end the drought? A letter from Josiah Effington to his cousin in New York, cemented my suspicions. Josiah had written, The new well is a godsend. No longer must we rely on the inconstant rains to slake the thirsty crops. 
it'd be an onerous task to transport the water to the crops. Withal, we are used to hard work. Josiah's letter had been written a full two weeks before the start of Abigail's trial, while the addendum to the trial transcript stated the well had been excavated two days after Abigail's hanging. I couldn't prove anything, but it seemed the good people of Southgate had entered into an agreement with Abigail Franklin to end the drought and then refused to pay her when she held up her end of the bargain. When Abigail insisted on payment, the inhabitants knowingly made false accusations against Abigail, held a trial, and then proceeded to hang her, knowing full well she was completely innocent of witchcraft. I was appalled by the demonstration of greed and blatant disregard for human life evinced by the citizens of Southgate. I wrote a story laying bare the facts concerning the trial and the prior events. I omitted the portion of the tale dealing with Abigail's collective curse upon the citizenry of Southgate and its apparent fulfillment. The people of Southgate probably died of an epidemic of some type. Unfortunate, but coincidental nonetheless. I felt such material to be too sensationalistic and, furthermore, it would detract from the hard facts I'd managed to dredge up concerning Abigail's innocence. I managed to have the piece published in an obscure regional publication. There I thought the matter would lie. Then, nine months after the story was published, I received a letter from a certain Sarah Hinsdale. Miss Hinsdale confessed to being a distant relative of Abigail Franklin. Furthermore, she told me she had been delighted to read a thoroughly researched, objective account of Abigail's story, accustomed as she was to reading undocumented slurs. She hinted, in a roundabout way, I'd really only revealed a fraction of the story. She assured me the events subsequent to Abigail's hanging were every bit as interesting as the tangled tale I'd uncovered. Miss Hinsdale thanked me profusely for my efforts at righting the wrong done to Abigail. She insisted upon expressing her gratitude in a form more concrete than mere words, and asked if I would be at all interested in perusing a diary written by a niece of Abigail Franklin. Needless to say, I jumped at the opportunity. I immediately responded to her letter, and we agreed to meet at her residence in New Hampshire in two weeks. Miss Hinsdale was plain, practical, and prudent the veritable image of the New England stock from which she was descended. She would never again see sixty, but her sparkling eyes and lively wit belied her years. We began our discussion on an autumn afternoon, over tea, and continued into the evening, the tea eventually being fortified with brandy. She allowed me to look through the diary of Prudence Adams, Abigail Franklin's niece, at my leisure. Other than family and a few close friends, no one has been permitted to study what has been set down on these pages, Miss Hinsdale assured me as she handed me the diary. As I mentioned in my letter, I believe the reminiscences contained within this book form a far more engaging story than the one concerning Abigail's trial. However, the vast majority of researchers in their ignorance would misinterpret what is written here. Given the opportunity, they would only reinforce the myth Abigail had been a witch. I despaired in finding anyone worthy to relate the happenings documented within these pages until I read your article. I graciously accepted the volume, as well as the praise, and skipped through the pages until I found a reference to Abigail's trial. It seemed Prudence had chronicled Abigail's final days in excruciating detail. The minutia set down was in stark contrast to the spotty information usually accorded the historical researcher, but the details were banal at best, and the narrative quickly descended into the depths of tedium. 
After reading a few pages, I knew what Abigail had worn, what she had eaten, and the words she had spoken on that fateful day of her hanging. I knew the exact location she had been buried, and at what depth. Detailed sketches accompanied the prose. Do you agree? Miss Hinsdale asked. Do I agree? I repeated stupidly, not understanding her question. Yes. Do you agree with my assessment regarding this chapter of Abigail's story? I... the details are... well, they're overwhelming. I sputtered, not wanting to offend my host by openly disagreeing with her. The diary was, indeed, brimming with information, but the data offered was somehow pedestrian in nature. I couldn't understand why Miss Hinsdale thought the diary was so intriguing. Read those few pages again, she suggested. Read them carefully. I'll find something for us to eat. Thinking I'd missed something, I thumbed through the yellowed parchment and reread the pages referencing Abigail. Still, I wondered what the good Miss Hinsdale expected me to find. I read the pages yet again. I inspected the sketches. Slowly, by incremental stages, I began to grasp the significance. It was Abigail, not her jailers, who'd specified what clothes she would wear and what food she would eat in her final moments. It was Abigail as well who detailed where she was to be buried. As long as Abigail's grave was not within the confines of the Bay Road burial ground, sacred ground, it was immaterial to her jailers where she was laid to rest. So, they acceded to her request. Why was Abigail so concerned with these trivial matters? Simply put, she didn't feel they were trivial. Do you believe in serendipitous events? Miss Hinsdale asked as she placed a tray of sandwiches between us. Without a doubt, I readily admitted. Approximately one year before your article was published, the owner of the land whereon the Bay Road burial ground is located decided to build luxury condominiums. Naturally, the human remains would be exhumed and reburied, but if left to the owner, the procedure would certainly lack the rigorous scientific protocol required for such operations. Realizing what was at stake, an archaeologist from the university immediately issued a request to perform the necessary task of removal and reburial so a proper study could be conducted. The owner granted permission, a work crew was hastily assembled, and excavation was begun. As we sit here chatting, they are mere days from finishing their task. She told me. A more serendipitous occasion could not be imagined. A moment of silence ensued as I struggled to make sense of what she was telling me. Miss Hinsdale had obviously been wrestling with the mystery of the Bay Road burial ground for quite some time. She had access to data crucial to the understanding of the case, data unavailable to others. She dissembled facts, made deductions. She knew things. Do you know how the people of Southgate died? I whispered. I believe I do, she admitted with the barest nod of her head. But we need to speak with Professor Donaldson, the archaeologist in charge of the excavations. He will be able to confirm whether or not my theory is correct. And you want me to write another article exonerating Abigail of any responsibility for their deaths? It won't exonerate her, she stated firmly. Abigail was responsible for their deaths. But there was no witchcraft involved. 
I simply want you to record the truth. Very well, I said as I reached for a sandwich. Tell me what you think happened, and tomorrow we'll go see Professor Donaldson. For the next two hours, Miss Hinsdale recounted the research she'd done in the areas of human physiology, botany, and hydrology, and by the end of that time I'd become convinced she held the answer to what transpired those many years ago to the people of Southgate. I returned to my motel room and slept fitfully for a few hours. After a quick and unsatisfying breakfast, I returned to Miss Hinsdale's house, and together we paid a visit to Professor Donaldson at the Bay Road Burial Ground. Professor Donaldson was worn and weathered like some ancient rock formation. His every word, each movement he made, seemed carefully planned and considered before being executed with an economy of effort. As Miss Hinsdale and I approached, he slowly rose and dusted his knees with gnarled hands. I introduced Miss Hinsdale and myself, and then proceeded to briefly outline the purpose of our visit. Abigail Franklin, Professor Donaldson mused in a dry voice. Yes. I'm familiar with the tale. He lingered over each word, delivering them with care, as though with every syllable a king's ransom was being dispensed. Then, you'll help us? I asked hopefully. I'm always in favor of discovering truth and dispersing knowledge, he drawled, not to mention furthering the cause of justice. How can I help? I then asked Professor Donaldson if he had been able to determine a cause of death for the majority of people interred in the Bay Road burial ground. Upon hearing the question, he frowned and bowed his head. Yes, I was able to come to a fairly reliable conclusion concerning the cause of death for many of these individuals, he said thoughtfully. Despite the deterioration of the coffins and the bodies, there are still certain indicators certain clues that can reveal a great deal about how a person has died. Miss Hinsdale then proposed a specific cause of death, and confidently predicted 90% of the corpses buried in the cemetery would fall into that particular category. She asked him if he could either refute or verify her suspicions. I wondered. Professor Donaldson sighed. As plot after plot was uncovered and we examined the human remains within. I wondered. I hoped I was mistaken. I looked for other possibilities. It was all so incredible, so hard to believe. You're right, but how did you suspect? Abigail was a competent midwife and thus quite knowledgeable about the physiology of the human body. I informed him. She was also a skilled herbalist and possessed a wealth of knowledge concerning a wide variety of plants. Additionally, she engaged in the art of dousing. I don't know how you feel about dousing, Professor Donaldson. Many people consider dousing unscientific and completely without merit, but it's a fact. Abigail somehow managed to find water sources with a remarkable degree of consistency. She utilized this uh, triumvirate of specialized lore to gain her revenge on those who had wronged her. The night before she was to be hanged, Abigail requested a special dish made from a plant closely related to the hemlock. Her niece Prudence prepared it for her. Abigail was intimately familiar with the properties of this particular plant. She knew precisely how it would interact with the human body. I hesitated before continuing my explanation. The next part was of a somewhat delicate nature, especially when one considered the fact there was a lady present, and I tried to choose my words carefully. 
Abigail also had Prudence assemble a type of undergarment. Abigail was well aware that upon being hung, she would lose all muscle control, and the contents of her bowels would be released. Her plan was to contain the bodily waste in this special undergarment for a short period of time, specifically until she was buried. The placement of Abigail's grave was critical to the success of her scheme. After years of dousing the area, she knew where the underground water sources were located, as well as their relative depth. Thus, she had her grave strategically placed over one of these subterranean streams. With the additional proviso, she was not to be buried in a coffin. After Abigail was executed and buried, the undergarment quickly rotted away, and the contents eventually leached through the soil and into the underground stream. The entire process took approximately one year, just as Abigail had predicted. The stream then carried the digested remains of the plant directly to the new well Abigail had contracted to find for Southgate, but for which she was never paid. The people consumed the water and were subsequently sickened by the chemical properties of the plant. Professor Donaldson nodded his head slowly. Still, what made you suspect the people had been... A bit of botanical research, of course, I elucidated. The effects of that particular plant were relatively unknown in Abigail's day, but it has since been thoroughly studied and cataloged. Modern science has detailed its capabilities and the information can be quickly retrieved from the internet. Coupled with that information was Abigail's final statement before the court. As she addressed the people of Southgate, she never claimed she would be responsible for their deaths before a year had passed. She stated the people of Southgate would wish for death before a year had passed. Her message carried a subtle but important distinction. Yes, I'm quite sure as they recovered from the toxins of the plant, the effects of which are only temporary, then revived inside their coffins and found they had been buried alive. The people of Southgate wished for nothing more. Professor Donaldson observed sadly. What will unfold a mass grave wasteland promise foretold a fatal plan heed what's been sold a town in ruin The story of Abigail is undeniably tragic. I suppose it's tragic for the people of Southgate as well, but let's be real. While she's absolutely guilty of causing mass live burials, they kind of had it coming. Abigail was just a woman far too ahead of her time. Far too intelligent, independent, and willful for her 17th century village to understand or embrace. That's why, when it came to telling her story, I needed the help of one particular musician— Neela Pekarik. As she herself is more imaginative, inventive, unique, and intelligent than many people know what to do with, 
she has an organic connection to those like Abigail. She has actually written an entire concept album about another such woman. Entitled Rattlesnake, it tells the real-life story of a Colorado frontierswoman, Rattlesnake Kate, who clobbered 140 rattlers during an unexpected snake migration on the plains of Colorado. Rattlesnake Kate, known Kate Slaughterback, got a nickname when she was looking for ducks and then a rattlesnake attack. The album is a cheeky amalgam of folk, Americana, doo-wop, barbershop, blues, and even a smidge of the American musical theater. In fact, the album has been adapted for the stage. As of a few days ago, there was going to be a full production coming to the Denver Center for the Performing Arts in 2021. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, the DCPA just announced their entire season is canceled. But you can still purchase the album wherever you buy your music. And you can even buy it on vinyl, which is the option I went with, and I love it. I'm so honored that Neela was game to write music for Abigail, which you heard throughout the story, but she left us with an extra treat. That music you heard was adapted from this full version of the song. Enjoy Neela Pekarik's Abigail. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks again to Neela. Before I go, I'd like to ask you a favor. 
Think of one person you know who would enjoy this episode, or perhaps a previous episode, and share it with them. The podcast has been steadily growing since launch, but I need your help to give it an extra push to the next level. Thanks in advance, and I look forward to having you back in two weeks. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. The Bay Road Burial Ground by Edward T. May Recitation and Audio Design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.